0: Please take them and turn with me again to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 35 is what we'll be today. Numbers 35. This is the second to last chapter in the book of Numbers today, so um, we're almost done. We're almost done. Anyways, uh, I really want to again just express my appreciation to all of you who helped out at yesterday's uh, fall festival. Uh, A lot of you were here participating, Uh, you helped set up, you know, uh, operate the various games and things like that, and uh, and you were just here just being available, setting up, cleaning up, uh, making foods and such. And all those things. And and then, of course, I really appreciate just uh, us, many of you being faithful, just invite your friends or your children really being faithful, invite their friends so that we could come and uh, share the gospel with them. So a wonderful time, encouraging time yesterday. Anyways, well... If you are one who reads the news, you, well, yeah, you read the news probably. Uh, you read the news or you watch the news. It used to be we watch the news. Nowadays we kind of read the news more. It seems like, uh, at least I read the news. Um, and uh, you can't come, you can't help but read the news. And, and oftentimes, maybe it's just me, maybe it's the you know the, the internet figuring me out. But I often come across these daily reports of violent criminals or depraved individuals, you know, doing what they do. You ever you get. Or you get like bunnies and cats or something like that, okay, uh, but yeah, that's what I get, and I, I, I whenever I read that kind of thing, and maybe you do too, I, I think you do too, probably, <clears throat> because it just seem so prevalent, but when I read about things like that and just and it's you can't go a day without reading something like that, you just feel like all times we respond like oh man that's that's horrible, that's terrible, I can't believe that happened, and oftentimes what we think when that happens is like, man, God, especially if it's some Act of evil, depravity, you are like, God we'd you, you sh- strike that guy down. You know that guy deserves your wrath, and certainly it's true that guy does deserve uh, God's wrath. But what we tend to forget, and you know what I sometimes tend to forget too, is that that at that very moment, I also deserve God's wrath, right? You know sometimes there's this thing that happens to us as Christians, especially we've been Christians for many, many years is that we, we tend to forget about our, our sinful past. We tend to forget about the, the, depra- the depravity that we too were, were saved out of. And, and hopefully we've grown a little more sanctified over the years. And while we readily admit that, oh, I still sin daily, if we are honest with ourselves, we'll say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person over there. I'm not about that bad as person that I'm reading about. I'm not as violent, and I'm not as depraved. But nevertheless, we are sinners. We, we still have a sin nature. And under the right circumstances, the right moment, we too, except for the grace of God, would sin in the same way. And it's why, because of that reality of this sin nature that's made into a new creation that's being conformed in the image of Christ but still has that sin nature, why we need this book, right? Why we open it every week. Why, you know, why, If you've already read through it once, aren't, aren't you done? You know, you say, oh, I, I finished, I read the book, time to go read the second edition or something like that. No, we need to constantly read this book because w- this book is a book not for good people, not for, in a sense, uh, people that have figured it all out, not for people who are righteous. It's a book for sinners. This book is a book for sinners. It's written by sinners. It's about a sinner's, and most importantly, it's about The God Who Saves Sinners. This book tells us and reveals to us about God's grace and mercy towards sinners. Sinners like me and sinners like you. Today's passage, when we look at Numbers 35, reminds God's people that we are always in need of God's grace and mercy. We need God's grace. We need God's mercy. Israel, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness... Uh, out of having been delivered out of their slavery in Egypt. After 40 years, we're now camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan River opposite Jericho. There God, and there God has been preparing for them to enter into the promised land. He has been preparing them for war, for worship, and for the way of life that they are to live in the land. He's been giving them instructions. And in chapter 32, most recently in chapter 32, we've been seeing more instructions about, about the land that they would live in, how, where they would live in the land. In chapter 32, the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had requested and received land in the Transjordan as their possession, as their inheritance. In the previous chapter, at the end of the chapter particularly, God had given instruction, uh, or chapter 33, in fact, in that, in that chapter, God had given particular instructions for Israel to, when they enter the land, to make sure that they, that they destroy and, and, send, and send out all those, the people who dwelt in the land, the Canaanites, and particularly to destroy all their places of idolatry. Then, in the previous chapter... God had given instructions for the boundaries of the land of Canaan. These were, these were the, he set exact boundaries for where they would live. And he would set apart leaders that would be responsible for apportioning the land to the remaining nine and a half tribes of Israel. And so we have all the, tw- all the 12 tribes, the, the two and a half, uh, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, and then the nine and a half, their main, they knew generally uh, they, that they were going to have a portion in the land But what remains to be answered at this point is, where would the Levites live in the land? As you may remember, throughout the wanderings in the wilderness, the Levites had a special place of where they dwelt. They dwelt right next to the tabernacle. They dwelt around the tabernacle, and then all the other tribes dwelt, kind of uh, camped around them. They, they were actually like a physical barrier protecting the Israelites from approaching and profaning the tabernacle and being struck dead. But when they enter the promised land, where would they live? Where would they dwell? Would they continue to dwell where basically right wherever the tabernacle was and eventually where the temple was? Today's chapter answers the question of where the Levites were going to live, essentially. And God reveals that the answer is that he would give them cities to live all throughout the land of Canaan. then these cities will become from the other tribes. In the giving of these cities, Israel is then reminded of God's grace and mercy. We can call these cities the Levitical cities or the cities of the Levites. And as we study this passage today, we're going to look at two purposes for these Levitical cities. Two purposes that God explicitly states for why he gives them these two cities. And as we look at these purposes, they they teach us about God's grace and mercy, all right? So that's pretty simple. Two purposes for the Levitical cities that teach us of God's grace and mercy. Let's take a look at purpose number one. The first purpose for why God gave these Levitical cities to the Levites, well, very simply and quite understandably, they were given as cities to live in, cities to live in, verses one to eight, quite straight, a pretty uh, kind of a, a... Maybe may be obvious, but let's read verse 1 to 8 of the chapter 35. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they give to the Levites from the inheritance of their possession cities to live in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to live in, and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their herds and for all their beasts. The pasture lands of the cities, which you shall give to the Levites, shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits around. You shall also measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits, and on the south side 2,000 cubits, and on the west side 2,000 cubits, and on the north side 2,000 cubits, with the city in the center. This shall become theirs as pasture lands for the cities. Verse 6. The cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge, which you shall give for the manslayer to flee to, and in addition to them you shall give forty two cities. All the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be forty eight cities, together with their pasture lands. As for the cities which you shall give from the possession of the sons of Israel, you shall take more from the larger, and you shall take less from the smaller. Each shall give some of his cities to the Levites, in proportion To his possession, which he inherits. So we're again seeing God giving instructions. Verse (coughs) 1 begins with that familiar phrase (coughs) in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. Ever since Numbers chapter 22, you go back there and remember, they had been camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. There in 22, 23, 24, they had that exchange with the king, uh, king of Moab, Balak, and hiring the prophet Balaam and the whole story about his donkey and, and all the, the scheming, evil scheming that that went on. And from that point on, they've been camped there. And this is in the 40th year of, of the wilderness wandering. God uh, basically could have at any moment, basically indicated to the Israelites that it's time to enter the promised land by basically lifting up the pillar of cloud from over the tabernacle and moving across towards the west, towards the land of Canaan. But God did not. God kept this cloud over the tabernacle, thus indicating to Israel that they were to remain. Why would they remain? Well, the purpose for them remaining there in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho was that they might receive instruction and at times we see this phrase, it's often associated all th- from Numbers chapter 25, 20, 26 and on. We see then Israel receiving instruction from the Lord. In fact, it's kind of interesting, this whole section from Numbers 26 to Numbers 36 are a kind of a, a, uh, a whole section together because it uh, it's in because how Numbers 36 ends. Number 36, when we look at it tomorrow next time, it's going to be an odd passage to end with. But the last verse in Numbers 36 is not odd. It, it, makes, it makes sense. There in Numbers 36, verse 13, and we read this. These are the commandments and the ordinances which the Lord commanded to the sons of Israel through Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. So it kind of bookends it, you know. This is these are, these are the, all these instructions that, we be, that God has been giving from Numbers 26 all the way to Numbers 36. These are all these commands, all these instructions God wants to give to them to prepare them for life in the promised land, to prepare for war, to prepare for worship, to prepare for a way of life in the land. Uh, we've, God has given them, for instance, in Numbers 26, 3, it was to number instructions to number the fighting men of Israel. In Numbers thirty-three fifty, it was instructions to, to drive out the, all the inhabitants of the land. Now in Numbers 35, verse 1. God gives them instructions, the Israelites, to give to the Levites from the inheritance of their possession, the land basically that's been divvied up already, or about to be divvied up uh, when they enter the land, from their possession, cities to live in. So God wants all the tribes of Israel to give from their possession, cities to the Levites to live in. You think about it, why do the Levites need these cities? Why don't they have their own inheritance, the land. Why don't? Why isn't there a, a land that's kind of marked up for the Levites, as like just like the other twelve tribes? Well, if you recall back to our study in Numbers, Numbers eighteen verse twenty, God gave us an answer. We read this: Then the Lord said to Aaron, Aaron of course being the high priest at that time, the descendant of a uh, son of Levi, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion. Among them, I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. God had said to Aaron and, and to his descendants, the tribe of Levi, in essence, composing of all the priests and the Levites, would not have any inheritance. They would have, not have any possession, of a land that they could call their own, that would belong to them, that they could pass on to their children and to their children's children, that they could pass on from generation to generation. But God says, you're not going to have an inheritance of the land. Instead, you're going to have something better. God says, for I am your portion. I'm your inheritance. You know, so I remember when we preached there, I think I uh, often reminded us, like, what would you rather have? Would you rather have a a house in the Seacliff area? Not bad. Maybe you have a house in Seacliff and invite me over for dinner. Uh, then, or would you rather have God? That's an easy answer, right? You'd rather have God, of course, those house sea cliffs, not bad, because these things are just material possessions, they perish with time. They're, you can't even take them with you when you die. but God, if He is your possessions, he's your inheritance, he's yours always. He belongs to you and and for the Levites to have as an inheritance, it's not just only that, but they, for, the, for as long as Israel exists, would have a special, unique relationship with God. They would act as mediators between God and his people. And remember, they were the ones who were responsible for the sacrifices. They were the ones who were responsible for the, the priestly activities and, and assisting the priest activities. And because of that, they also, and we learn in Numbers 18... Received their provisions from the Lord. They received of the of the tithes that Israel gave uh, to the Lord. They received of the uh, of the offerings that the Israel gave to the Lord, or at least some of those offerings that God gave to the that people God gave to the Lord. From the offerings and tithes of Israel, the priests and Levites received basically a portion of their needs. And so. They would not have an inheritance in the land. But they, they need to live somewhere. And so how, where will they live? God answered by saying they're going to live in cities. He's going to say they're going to live in the cities that the people of God, the Israelites, are going to give to the Levites. They're going to, what they receive from the Lord, from what they receive from the Lord, they are going to give to the Levites. That's, a, that's, that's what's happening here. God provides these cities for them to dwell. These cities are not inheritance though they would they though they are not are never called inheritance. You, if you look at the the wording here in Numbers 35, you never see these cities referred to as the Levites inheritance or the Levites possession. It's these are merely these are cities for where the Levites were to live in. For God would remain their inheritance, and God will remain the one who provides for them all that they need, including now the cities to live in. Now, in addition to these cities to live in, the Israelites are also to give to the Levites pasture lands as well. You know, they see uh, um, that the descriptions of like the, the surround, around the walls, they would receive a certain X number of cubits so that they could raise their animals there. And the location of these cities is a testimony to God's wisdom. He could have just given the Levites just one place, right? He could have said, well, I'm just going to, wherever the temple is, I'm going to block out a little, just like around the tabernacle, I'm going to block out a little space. That's where you're going to dwell, right? Because eh, it's convenient. You know, i am got to be serving the temple anyways. Why don't you just live around the temple? But God doesn't do that. Rather, he spreads them out in cities all throughout Israel, 48 cities in all. Um, Joshua 21 uh, if, when you, if you have time, you can read it there, records the specific cities that are given from the various tribes in, to the Levites. And it's interesting as they kind of look at these cities and where they're located. I'll show up a map a little later. One commentator notes at that this, that, that very few Israelites lived more than 10 miles from a Levitical town. Wherever you lived in Israel, wherever you lived in Canaan, wherever you lived in the Transjordan, you were essentially never more than 10 miles away from a Levitical town. And where you and so you could all, basically Israel always had access to a Levite, so wherever you were, you could if you needed a Levite, you could approach one they'd be, they'd be close by, and you think, well, what do they need the Levites for don't, you know just don't they just go to the temple or the tabernacle for that? Yes, that's true. you can go to the temple and tabernacle, you'd find priests and Levites there, but the not if you if you, well, uh, if you understand how the Levites serve, they, they did not need all of them to be at the temple, at the tabernacle, to be serving at the, at the t- same time. That's why they were often had shifts. Even uh, there was drawing of lots for the someone who would go in and, and light, the, uh, light the incense or, or light the, can- the, the, the candles each day. And so they were, there would be were times or shifts or weeks where priests or Levites would serve in the temple or in the tabernacle in this case. But the other times, what were they doing? You know, kind of like you wonder, hey, pastors, what, you, you preach on Sunday, what do you do the rest of the time? You know, we must be doing nothing. Well, anyways, uh, no, we, we do a lot of planning, administrating, meeting, e- emailing. Anyways, so when the Levites were not serving at the tabernacle or in the temple, what were they doing? They were teaching God's law to God's people. That was the resp- one of the responsibilities. And so in giving the cities to the Levites all throughout Israel, Israel then basically was receiving a blessing in return. For as they gave these cities that were near them to the Levites, they always had a Levite nearby who could teach them God's law. They didn't have to go all the way, especially if you were in the north, far north or the far south. You didn't have to go to, to Jerusalem to find the tabernacle or temple. You didn't really have to go a few miles away and you would find a Levitical city. You find Levites there. In fact, the Levites probably spread out and went kind of visiting uh, the different towns around them. And so Israel always had the blessing then because they gave these cities. They always had this blessing of having teachers of the law accessible to them. So in a sense, the Israelites received blessings from the Lord through their giving of their cities to the Levites. And the Levites received God's blessing of provision of a city to live in. So in this way, God provides for the Levites through the possession that he gives to his people. So God gives to the people that they might give to him. Of course, this is a principle we just kind of talked about during our time of offering, right? This principle is a principle that we see in the New Testament as well, that God provides for his servants, his his ministers, his pastors, uh, evangelists, through what he gives to his people. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17-18 of this principle, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. But the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. When you give your offerings to the Lord, God, through your offerings, is providing for the the needs of the church staff here at S.A. Bible. And he's providing for us and the other staff here through what he has given you. And hopefully all of us are, have disciplined ourselves to practice the regular act of giving, uh, not just because it's to my benefit, but it's, it's to your own benefit. It's a discipline of, of godliness, discipline of learning, dependence upon the Lord. And it's a recognition that, uh, of just obedience to God's command. It's a recognition uh, not only of what we mentioned earlier in, this, in Psalm 24, but it's also a recognition that those, that the, those who teach us the Word of God those who lead us are, are worthy of double honor. And when we talk about, there's always debate about what double honor means. But in verse 18, is kind of clear. Basically, not muzzle certain labor is worthy of his wages. It's, it's talking about support, provision, uh, that they are worthy of our support. And um, I'll, I hope that we recognize and appreciate uh, the, the elders of our church, the, the shepherds, the, the, the pastoral staff, as well as the administrative staff of this church. You know, yesterday we, we had our fall fest, and I think many of you came. I, I, I hope you were blessed by that. I, I know I was blessed by it, uh, just the, seeing uh, so uh, the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. It was amazing turnout of children, amazing turnout of families, uh, and to enjoy uh, time together, games, prizes, food, while importantly, hearing the gospel proclaimed. And I know we exceeded our expectations for turnout uh, I, I it was much more than we expected and i and i know that many of you participated and helped out but i want to just particularly acknowledge and express my, our appreciation and we in a sense a way of honoring our brother theo uh, who was lead point in this and uh and really did all the planning of course with his wife too uh but uh you know just He's our children's director, and he's uh, really, I, I saw him throughout the week, and I know in the weeks that coming up, just, just so much work uh, in the church, getting things ready, a lot of com- great communication, and that's, that's a labor that he does, it's, uh, and, it's, and I think if you were blessed by the, the, the time, let him know, I'd go up to him and tell him how much you appreciated what he did, uh, and, but the, such workers are worthy of double honor. God provides for them, for our pastoral staff, through what he has provided you. And that's why we give in worship. And one of the reasons why we give in worship. Well, God in his grace provides all that his people need. All of what his servants need and all that you need. And God provides. Does he not provide all that you need? He does. Just as he provided for all that Israel needed in the wilderness. But we especially see it in the life of the Levites. The life of Levites who basically were devoted to service of God and uh, they would not have their own inheritance of a land. You know, just imagine how important it is for us to own land in our days, how helpful that is from a financial standpoint. They did not own their land. So they depended upon God for His provision and God provided abundantly and richly for them. And they're an example to us. That even though God may, we may have jobs ourselves, we may have our own possessions, but to never forget that, all that we need, we depend upon God for. Our jobs are from God. The, our strength is from God. Our skills are from God. God gave these th- things to us so that he might provide for our needs. Anyways, that we see God's grace through these cities of, to live in for the Levites. There's a second purpose for the Levitical cities They remind us of God's grace and mercy. And the second purpose is that these cities of, of the Levites to live in, among the 48, six of them stand out. And these six cities are cities of refuge. They're cities of refuge, and this is the the greater saint, uh, section of this chapter. It's a very interesting section if you've uh, never read this before. It's quite fascinating. It has to do with murder, manslaughter, and all kind of the fun things like that. Um, stuff that I like to read about, and then you know I don't like to read. But I seem to always read if I come across such stuff. <coughs> cities of refuge. In verses 9 through 34, let's read verses 9 through 15 first. Numbers 35, 9 and following. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. The cities shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger, so that the manslayer will not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. The cities which you are to give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities across the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan. They are to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the sons of Israel and for the alien and for the sojourner among them that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there." Earlier in, chapter, in the chapter, in verse 6, reference was made to these six cities of refuge among the cities of the Levites. And now in this particular section, we're learning more specific details about these six cities of refuge. What are they? Uh, verse 11 tells us that these cities were towns where someone who basically unintentionally kills a man uh, may flee to and there find refuge, protection, shelter from the Avenger, the Avenger, okay? Uh, we'll talk about some of the, we'll kind of talk about these details in a little bit. Joshua 20, if you, again, that same chapter where we identify the 48 cities, also identifies these six cities of refuge by name. We learned that three of these cities were across the Jordan, the Transjordan, the cities were named Bezer, Ramoth-Gilead, and Golan. And three would be in Canaan, in the, in the western side of the Jordan River, Hebron. Shechem, and Kedesh. And if you look at these uh, sites on a map, like the one up there, I know it's pretty tiny. You use your eagle eyes or uh, 10 times zoom on your phone, whatever. I'll take a photo of that. You'll see that these cities, uh, and particularly the six cities of refuge, are spread out across the promised land, just like the Levitical cities are as well. So that anyone uh, basically who unintentionally kills a man may flee there. In a, it's, it's not far away; you could get arrive there. Equal access to any Israelite who found themselves basically under the threat of death at the hands of an avenger, because he had somehow unintentionally killed someone. And we know that in this law of the cities of refuge is really an elaboration of something that God had taught earlier. In the law, in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 12 and 13, we read these words God gave these instructions. This is instructions that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, right? He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. You see there, the, the general overarching instruction is that if you strike someone, that they, you kill them, you will be surely put to death. You're guilty. You're guilty of killing someone. You're guilty of taking the life of someone who is made in the image of God. And that's, that's an affront to holy God. You shall surely be put, you become guilty of shedding a man's blood. But God shows mercy in verse 13. If you are one who you didn't do it premeditated, you didn't lie and wait for him, but somehow God let him fall in your hand, we can elaborate on circumstances a little bit later, then God says, I'm going to appoint a place for you to flee to, a place you can find refuge. There you can be protected from the death that you deserve, essentially. And here now we see the elaboration of that, these cities of refuge. These are the, the places that God would appoint for them to flee to. So a person who kills someone, whether intentionally or unintentionally, would be put to death, deserve death, and this would be the responsibility of one known as the avenger. We see that word, right? The avenger here in our text, or it's also called blood avenger. And this Hebrew word for this the word, aven, translated avenger, is a significant one in the Old Testament. The word is a form of the Hebrew verb ga'el, ga'el meaning to redeem, to act as a kinsman, as a, re, as a close relative basically. But the participle form, when it makes it a participle, when you make a verb a participle, it becomes a noun. And this noun go'el, go'el, which is often translated as a close relative or kinsman redeemer. And if you hear that phrase, kinsman redeemer, it should kind of make some lights go off in your head. It should remind you of a certain book in the Bible named after a woman, about a woman named Ruth, right? All of us should be familiar with the story of Ruth. Ruth was a a Moabitess. Uh, She had married an Israelite. Uh, Her husband dies. Her father-in-law dies. She goes home with her mother-in-law, and she goes, and they're desperately poor. They have no means of living. They're about to die, and so they need deliverance. They They need to be redeemed, to be brought back under someone's care, and in those days, there was a. There was. They needed someone to be a kinsman redeemer, and that kinsman redeemer was Boaz, of course. And from that, they, he redeems her, and uh, you know, they you know, get married, they have kids eventually, and David comes from that line. And so, the kinsman redeemer, the avenger, the relative here, or the close relative, or is was oftentimes uh, or was supposed to be the closest male relative. At all times in every family in Israel, the closest male relative... Usually it would be the father of a household. That would be the closest male relative to most people. Would be the one responsible for caring for his family, taking care of his family. Uh, if not the father was not there, then it might be the oldest son. If not the oldest son, then one of the other sons. If not the sons, then there would be brothers. Then there would be cousins, and, and etc. But always the closest male relative would have a responsibility in the local family community to act in the authority given by God to be, kind of a, to be a kinsman redeemer. In the case of Ruth, it is to redeem her, to redeem her from her poverty, from her inevitable death in the poverty, bringing her into Boaz's family. But in the case of a relative murder, the kinsman redeemer is an avenger. That's why it's often the same word, but it's translated as avenger, though it's the same kind of role. It's the closest male relative responsible to seek out and put to death the one who killed his relative. This is the Goel. The Goel acts as the local authority of the family. And he is, has the task to, to avenge the death of anyone of his family that's been killed. But in, in the case of one who kills someone unintentionally, God allows an act of mercy to take place. He allows a place for that one who unintentionally murders someone or unintentionally kills someone a place for them to seek refuge. God makes clear, of course, that the city's refuge do not protect the one who intentionally kills anyone, as we see uh, as we read the rest of the chapter. Let's read verses sixteen through twenty-nine. Okay, sixteen and twenty-nine. And so this is a long section. So just try to read along, and if you know you're kind of. You know, just American law, you kind of just think about how much of this sounds familiar to even our American law today. It really, it comes from uh, this, uh, this is a real close relationship here. Verse 16, but if he struck him down, that is the, the one who killed someone, if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he struck him down with a stone in the hand by which he will die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he struck him with a wooden object in the hand by which he might die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. The blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. If he pushed him of hatred or threw something at him lying in wait, and as a result he died, or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, and as a result he died, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The blood avenger shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But, and here we, God's making a distinction between the murderer and the manslayer. Okay? If he pushed him suddenly without enmity or threw something at him without lying in wait or with, it, or with an, any deadly object of stone or, and without seeing it dropped on him so that he died, while he is not his enemy nor seeking his injury, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these words. Ordinances. The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled. And he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who is anointed with the holy oil. But if the, but if the manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of a city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of a city of refuge, And the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he will not be guilty of blood because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. These things shall be for a statutory ordinance to you throughout your generations in all your dwellings. God basically makes a distinction in these verses between murder and manslaughter. Our law does too. He defines murder here as one who basically uses a deadly weapon to attack someone. It doesn't matter if you say, oh, it was an accident. But I just I, I accidentally pointed a loaded gun at someone's face and pulled the trigger. That doesn't matter. You use a deadly weapon. You, you uh, use... You... <laughs> You used a two-handed sword, and you were, like, you know, attacking someone. Oh, it was unintentional. God would say you're a murderer if you kill him because you're using a deadly weapon. And, and I'm sure the, our law has these, you know, these kinds of things detailed out. But this is, God, God makes this detail here. God also defines a murderer as one who acts with premeditation. You are lying in wait, is, God, is the terminology. You, you waited for someone to come so he could pounce on them and, and attack them. Or, God defines murder as one who acts out of a, to attack someone out of with having a history of enmity with the person. You, you've, had a, you've had a beef with this person for a while, and it's all known, it's clear. In such cases, God says that person's a murderer, and the blood avenger shall put the murderer to death. There's no mercy for that murderer, but if he did not murder, if he unintentionally killed someone, if he didn't use a deadly weapon, he, or if he did use it and he, it was just an accident, he was dropping a rock and, and it just happened that someone was walking by and, and it fell on them, or if they didn't lie in wait to attack someone or they didn't have a, a beef with someone an enmity with someone, then that person, if they somehow in a, in a moment of, uh, in, a, in a, some odd moment, end up killing someone, then that person may be, is guilty of manslaughter, but they're allowed to flee to a city refuge where he is safe from death until the congregation has opportunity to investigate. And the congregation is presumably the congregation of the the Levites that are in that city. They would investigate the matter. And if they find, they, would, they evaluate it according to these statutory ordinances that we find here in our text. They say, well, is, is, is there history? Was there premeditation? Uh, did you use a deadly weapon? You know, all these things that they would ask. They would investigate. And they would make a determination. And if he's guilty, then they would they say, Sir, you're a murderer. And the avenger would put him to death. But if he's not guilty of murder, if he's, they find out, they determine that he's guilty of manslaughter only, then he is restored to the city. He's allowed to remain in the city of refuge where he is allowed to live there, freely there, until not his death, but the death of the high priest. Interesting. Well, that will be significant a little later. So God establishes the death penalty for murderers and a life sentence for manslayers. To live in the city of refuge for the rest of the high priest's life. And as long as the manslayer stays in the city of refuge, he has no fear of death from the, at the hands of the avenger. But if he disobeys God's command and leaves the city of the refuge before the high priest's death and the avenger somehow encounters him in the field and the blood avenger takes his life in vengeance, the blood avenger is not guilty. He's not guilty of the blood of killing that man because that man had disobeyed God in leaving the city. But the amazing truth thing here is that once the high priest dies, the the manslayer is free to return to his hometown. The avenger cannot touch him, cannot kill him anymore. Well, they could, they'd be murdered, but they're not allowed legally. In verse 30 to 34, uh, God concludes the matter with several kind of concluding statements and uh, overarching principles. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. You shall not take ransom for him who has fled to a city of refuge, that he may return to live in the land before the death of of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are. For blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of it, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. Here, God reiterates just the, uh, just sound wisdom, and when it comes to law, you can't put to death anyone just based on one witness. Right? Anyone could be a false witness and say, "Oh, I saw that person kill him." One witness. At least two witnesses are required. The more, the better. What's more, God says, not only do there need to be two witnesses before anyone can be put to death, but says, you can't rant, there's no ransom, for, there's no second chance for the murderer either. A person who is murdered, this goes all the way back to Genesis 9, 6, by the way. The one who sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. That's a clear statement after the flood that God establishes the death penalty for anyone who murders, who kills. You can't ransom the murderer. Their own death is required. Only by the shedding of blood is God's wrath expiated. What's more, you can't ransom even a manslayer. Even when, so that they can get early parole. You know, in the surrounding culture, surrounding nations, surrounding Israel, there are some laws that allow for someone to ransom a murder even. Oh, you know, you just killed a slave, so you know, you pay this extra amount of money, and oh, you're you're good, you know. You can you could be free. Oh if you oh you you're a manslayer, or well, you can just pay a little extra money and then you can you can get out of the early, get out of jail free, you know, or early. But not so with the people of God, not so with God. God does not allow for uh, any ransom for murder, God did not allow a ransom for, uh, to early release of a manslayer. They are instead, God provides only a refuge from his wrath in the cities, of refuge for the manslayer. And they are to wait there until the death of the high priest that they may go free. And that is an act of mercy. They don't have to wait until they die. It's not a life sentence for them. It's until the high priest dies. Of course, you may not know how long that is, if it, it may be a while. But for the Israelites in that day, to hear these, uh, to hear these instructions, it would have it would have been a powerful reminder to them of God's grace and mercy. The whole idea of the cities of refuge that are dwelt by Levites, judging the difference between murderers and manslayers would have been something that every Israelite would saw the profound truths. For if you know your Israelite history, if you go the way back all the way to Genesis, in Genesis 34, there a terrible thing happened. Uh, the sons of Jacob, one of their had a sister named Dinah, and she went out and she was raped by a local leader, son. And so, the local leader's son wanted to marry, make it up by marrying their sister. And the sons of Jacob came up with a plan. They said, "Yeah, yeah, you could. we Let's let's join together. Let's be, let's be a let's be a family. We can we'll marry each other. We, we'll give you we'll marry your daughters. You marry our daughters. But you need to be circumcised first because our God calls you to be circumcised if you want to be with us." And they said, "Oh, okay." Well, they convinced each other. So the the local leaders convinced themselves, that ah, we can do that. And so they all circumcised, and as they were still healing from the circumcision, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, took their swords, went into the town, and slaughtered every male in that city, including, of course, the rapist himself and his father and all their... In their vengeance in their wrath. Levi and Simeon too were murderers. They unjustly killed the whole, all these people who were not guilty of any crime. And if they had killed uh, uh, the, the rapist, maybe. But though Levi was a murderer, he did not receive death. God showed mercy upon him. God did not strike him down. Instead, Levi receives God's grace, God's mercy, would of course become the head of the tribe of Levi, from whom Aaron would come, the high priest would come, from whom the Levites would come, who would serve and assist the priests, the very ones who would act as mediators between God and the sons of Israel, descended from a murderer. Profound grace, amazing grace. And that city was called Shechem. And you look at the city's refuge, Shechem was one of the city's refuge. A powerful, powerful Every time an Israelite would be guilty of either murder or manslaughter, they would run to this city. They would run to a city of descendant of murderers where they would be judged by this, these people who had, who had, whose father had been a murderer. And they would be responsible to decide between murder and manslaughter. And it was a, in that, in the ability to live in the city of refuge was an act of God's grace. A God's grace upon the Levites. God's grace upon the Israelites. God's grace upon the manslayer. God's mercy abounds. Shechem and the other cities of refuge are a reminder of God's grace. For where the manslayer can, there the manslayer can run to a place dwelt by the descendants of one who murdered so many and yet still found grace from God. And that's why, that's what we learn from these cities of refuge. They remind us of God's grace. Well, let's wrap it up. Israel on the plains of Moab are given instructions regarding cities for the Levites to live in. The city is a refuge as well. Cities a refuge for the manslayer, and in both purposes, God reveals His grace. God reveals His mercy toward His people. He provides for the, the Levites so that they might live, a place, have a place to live, who, those who serve Him. And He provides a place of mercy for manslayers to run to, to find refuge from the death of the avenger because of the, they had killed someone and shed blood. And as God's people today, God continues to show grace to us, does He not? Through, of course, daily providing for us what we need to live, just as He provided for the the Levites. And God continues to also provide for us what we need to live free from sin, from the judgment of sin, which is death. There's one last thing that just is so real powerful that I would like to just end with, is that it's about that little fact about how the manslayer is set free. He's judged to live in that city of refuge for the, not the rest of his life, but the rest of the high priest's life. That's, that's an interesting little detail. If you look back in verse 25 of chapter 35, it says, that, And he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. All throughout Numbers, we've been talking about, every time we come to these priests, sec, priestly sections, We always remind ourselves that every priest, every high priest particularly, foreshadows Christ. And there is the same foreshadowing that is taking place right here in this passage. This high priest who is anointed with oil. By the way, we know that Hebrew word anointed is the word from which we get our Hebrew word, the title for Jesus, Jesus as the Messiah in Hebrew. In Greek, it's the Christ, the anointed one. The manslayer who is set free at the death of the high priest is a foreshadowing of Christ. For the Son of God is both the avenger, he is the one who's going to judge us for our sins, and he's the one who punishes those who, who, uh, who murder and who, man, who slaughter, take life, but he's also the kinsman redeemer. And by the way, who is your closest male relative? It's not your father. It's not your son. It's not your husband. It's the man who created you. Jesus, the son of God. He is both the avenger and our kinsman redeemer. He is the one who, is every, who has every right to put us to death for our sins. He is the one who also redeems us. He is the anointed high priest whose death, Ransoms us, not just from the manslaughter, and not just, but m- even murder as well, and from all the other sins in our lives. This is Jesus. This is this. Uh, many some scholars say that this is one. This is among one of the three top foreshadowings, the types of Jesus Christ in uh, in the uh, book of Numbers. And I would agree, and so we end then with a couple questions for discussion. Hopefully you can discuss yourself. this is a, uh, <clears throat> these are questions for us to discuss in our small groups throughout our many families during the week. We talk about um, God providing through what he gives to his people, and so when we give to God, how does that and hopefully that reminds us even of our dependence upon God's grace? All of what we give to God is from God. how does that remind you as you Give an offering to the Lord each week. Does that? How does it remind you upon your, de- your dependence upon God's grace in your life? And then the same question. I, let me explain a little bit. You know that Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, right? That you've heard it said that you know anyone basically an eye for an eye. For the, basically, if you get murder. You, you know, you should lose your life. But he goes on and says, if you're angry with your brother, if you're just angry with him, you, just hate your brother, you don't like your brother, you're upset at your brother. Jesus says you're just as guilty, you're just as liable to judgment as the murderer. It's the same judgment, whether you hate your brother or whether you just want to you killed someone. And so it's, just, it's a powerful warning to us to not be angry with our brothers. And I know in a church this size, it's, it's always easy to get upset, to step on each other's toes sometimes, offend one another. Sometimes we might even have ongoing beef, I hope not. But is there any anger toward a brother that you need to make right? If you, if you come and worship the Lord, you know someone has a sin against you, what does what the scripture say? You need to leave your offering there and go make it right with the brother. right? That kind of passes. But I mean, let's, let's repent of uh, any anger towards brethren. And then thirdly, what can you do? Um, if Jesus is the Redeemer and, and the cities of refuge are, are basically pointing, are foreshadowing of Christ, and if Jesus is our Redeemer, then we who are the, are the body of Christ... We're to be, in a sense, the visible presence of Christ on earth and the church. We're, we ought to be like a city of refuge as well. And so the question is, what can we do to be more of a city of refuge for sinners? So when sinners come in our doors, they don't feel that they're judged by us. They're, they're, they're hated or treated like, oh, you're a scum of the earth. Oh, God's wrath, you deserve God's wrath. Well, you do, but so do I. Please make sure I remember that part. Then how can we be more more loving in welcoming sinners into our, this city of refuge where all of us are sinners and all of us who have come and cling to the cross for refuge from the death that we deserve because of our sins. And if you're here, if you, if you have not believed in Jesus Christ, if you've not rec- received him as a refuge from the death, of the, as the penalty of sin for, for you because of your sins, I invite you to receive him today. Confess him as your Savior and Lord. Acknowledge that he died and rose on the, from the grave for you. The, son, the sinless son of God died for you so that you might know him and know deliverance and redemption. He is your kinsman redeemer and came to save you, to ransom you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for these truths and the reminder of Jesus, we, uh, we pray, Lord, that, that you would help us to be uh, always, rec- remember, always mindful of the grace and mercy that we need from you daily in our lives. Even as we look upon the world, a world of, uh, full of sin, Lord, help us to never forget that we still have a sin nature. We still deserve your wrath, but we've instead found your grace and mercy. Lord, help that to soften us, to make us more gentle, to make us more loving, to make us more kind and understanding towards sinners. Help us as a church to be a, truly a city of refuge for sinners who seek, who seek deliverance from the death that they are under because of their sin. Lord, we pray that you would send us forth into your world as your witnesses to tell others about Jesus. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Uh, Let's stand and sing the last song in response.